Hello and welcome to this Independent Research Forum podcast. The IRF was founded by Edward Blad to represent the cream of independent investment research providers to institutional investors. The IRF revenue shares with our providers, so there is no additional cost to investors. I'm JP Smith, and it's my pleasure today to introduce Mark Latham, CEO and founder of Commodity Intelligence, which he founded in 2008. He provides speciality advice on global commodity markets and equities, and indeed his research is some of the most interesting and wide-ranging that I've had the pleasure of reading. Mark spent 23 years as a fund manager, including five years managing the Bering Natural Resource Fund, which returned 20.4% versus 2.4% average for peers, and spent four years managing a global long-short fund as well. I listened to his call in November. He, IRF hosted an event for him. And to paraphrase, his views there, basically quite sceptical about commodity markets over the short term, a little more nuanced over the medium and long term. And this was at a time when commodities, as well as emerging markets, were extremely crowded trades. And I think a lot of people have been very badly caught out in both asset classes over the course of this year. If they'd listened to that event in November, they would have received better advice. So it'll be interesting to see if Mark's views have changed today. He has a presentation which he'll refer to from time to time, which we can send out with the emails. It's entitled Diabolical Mechanism. Mark, over to you. Good afternoon, and thank you very much. It's a very kind invite. I just want to introduce myself. I run Commodity Intelligence. We're a subscription-based service. We use AI to generate uh, alpha. I think we've got a very good track record. So today I'm going to talk about the diabolical mechanism. And by that I mean, I mean I, rather than use growth and value, I, I've decided to use tango and jive. Because tango is a very dark dance, very passionate, very romantic, but actually very sad dance and sort of suits value investors. Whereas jive is kind of bubbly and smiley and forward-looking and fun and colorful. So it sort of suits growth investors. So with that, I'm going to go to slide number two. So Mark, when you talk about a diabolical mechanism, do you want to uh, summarize exactly what you mean by that? One thing I've noticed, you know, we have a big rule of thumb over at Commodity Intelligence is that markets invariably move in the direction of the most pain. And this is particularly powerful in commodity markets so that when you get a, an overloaded trade that's, say, long, and consensus has moved very bullish, which is, you know, was true of oil and gas right up until the middle of last year. And then it gets very dangerous. And, you know, you get some event or a set of events which the market tries to ignore, but then undermine the trade and, you, you know, you set the pendulum off in the opposite direction. The thesis I'd like to talk about today is that I guess 90% of investors are scared, and rightly so, of inflation. Because they look at the debt GNP worldwide and they look at the state of government finances and they think, oh my God, inflation is the only way out. But the way, what I would rather people think about is what I would call monetary instability. I, you have an equal logical case for a, a deflationary 
robust outcome as you do for an, an inflationary sort of commodity style outcome. So basically, you know, I've got a picture here of the monetary instability picture that we're, we've been really building now for 20, 30 years. We've sort of seen wild fluctuations in terms of the psychology around the sort of monetary growth, monetary creation over the last sort of three or four years. And obviously that ties into external events as well, particularly uh, COVID and the Ukraine conflict and the impact on the uh, gas prices and also what's happened in China as well, both geopolitically and, and now increasingly, I think, financially and economically. But why do you think people have this tendency, or in, and including the central banks, always to view this in, in the rear view mirror? So I think you said in your last event that you did for us that narratives follow markets. And in other words, the narrative only comes into being after the market action has actually taken place. There's two distinct worlds out there. There's what I would call the real world, where you have producers making things and shipping them down supply chains to consumers who consume things and governments you know regulating activity at, at the legislation as best they can and then you have the financial world and the financial world is sort of ripples with tides and waves and storms of opinion you know often what we find is that the financial world set of opinions get dislocated from what's going on in the real world but then obviously that feeds back into the real world. I mean, if we look, for example, at, you know, at ESG. Yeah, actually, we had, we had a, a very classic example of that late last year, which was that one of the charts we picked out, I can't remember from where, but we showed that recession expectations were at an all-time high since the data, the, the data set we, we were using was provided, which is something back to like 1946 or something. Recession expectations were incredibly high. And the real world response to recession expectations being very high is purchasing managers cut back on inventory violently. And we began to see a massive destocking wave, which started roughly late fourth quarter and is still, I call it the pig in the python, you know, because you know, the python swallow a pig and the and as the pig gets digested, it moves down the python and comes out the other end. So this 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 inventory dislocation is, is still out there, very powerful. And that, in a sense, is your dislocation. And that's your disinflation as well, because if you're, let's say, Walmart, for example, if you're a supplier to Walmart and Walmart decides that, well, you know, we've got too many conflicts, we'll order 10% less conflicts. And you're a poor conflict manufacturer, and suddenly your order volume goes down 10%, then it feels like a recession. Yeah. Do you want to say something about AI and your methodology? Because in terms of actually identifying the sort of prevailing narratives in the market, I mean, I guess one of the reasons you've been successful is partly down to experience, but also an analysis, but also because you have this AI data-based system. Do you want to describe that a little bit? We started building our AI about 14 years ago. At the time, we did not know we were building an AI, I will be honest with you. And my observation then is that, by and large, the market processes numbers incredibly fast. And poor people like me who are on the receiving end of the Bloomberg or whatever have no chance against 
traders who are trading on the nanosecond or day traders or option traders and you know or, or the speculators effectively front running us because they see the numbers and they're able to trade much faster than I'm able to respond popular function of my age so we we decided to focus on the build-up of stories that actually impact the numbers you know the classic example is is this destocking phase and the destocking phase has <laughs> yeah has very very serious impact on revenues and we've got now about half a dozen big companies reporting you know, quite serious shortfalls in, in their revenues and numbers because of destocking. I mean, the most recent, I think, was Croda in the UK, which was, you know, quite a shock to investors. And the, the market took that stock down 12 15%. What our AI does, simplistically, is I want to say it reads about 25,000 stories a week. And it picks out maybe 75 stories that it thinks are relevant to me as a commodity investor. And in our daily, we, we pick up those stories and comment on them. And really, the story flow, I would segregate it into two different caps. One is the perception of markets about where the commodity complex is. And the second is the real-world actions of companies and consumers. What we're trying to do, what we're always trying to do, is, is look in financial markets for when a dislocation between consensus and reality becomes acute enough that you can, you know, there's there's really serious alpha from, you know, actually trading against the market and being very, very contrary. So would it be um, true to say that at the start of this year, if we look at the energy complex, for example, um, and I think it applies to a lot of the other commodities as well, although I notice you have a chart here in your presentation, I think it's on about page four, of the lumber price, which which actually seems almost to have been a lead indicator and precursor for some of the other commodities in terms of the action, you know, peaking very, very dramatically and then going down by what, roughly two thirds. Yeah, I mean, lumber is really interesting because it was almost a perfect COVID-19 story. IRF will remember this well because we talked about this at a conference way back in February 2020. And... At the time, people were dismissive that COVID-19 was a, was a big deal. And I remember standing on stage and saying, actually, COVID-19 is a big deal. <laughs> because we were, staying, we were seeing story flow out of Wuhan. At the, at the time, the epicenter was Wuhan, and we, we were seeing the impact. And, you know, we, we could see just how, not dangerous this disease was, but, but how, how easily it was communicated. So we took about, uh, we actually told plants to take about 30% liquid. Then, you know, we got into this COVID-19, we got that lockdowns, we got the total panic by both populations and governments. And, you know, we had this sort of work from home thing going on. And of course, everybody working from home discovered that their, you know, spare bedroom wasn't very good as an office. So we had this <laughs> crazy outbreak of office building. And you can see it in the lumber price. The lumber price goes shooting off the, off the charts as COVID-19 maxes. And, and supply of lumber is pretty much constant. You could argue, in fact, that supply during COVID-19 was actually constrained because the sawmills were, were, were closed. But, I mean, you, you saw this amazing pricing peak in lumber. And as COVID-19 passed through the system and, you know, we've all got vaccinated, discussed efficacy, but anyway, 
then lumber lumber crashed and came straight back down to where it started and you know that this return to trend i mean it left no inflationary signature in the system at all first point and the second point is is as you absolutely absolutely say it was a it was a it was a portent of things to come and as I say, I was I was surprised at the start of this year just just how bullish people were. But 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 if we look at energy, I mean the narrative had taken hold, and I mean there's some excellent people out there. I mean I listened to the Macro Voices podcast, for example, with Eric Eric Townshend, and and you know he had a succession of guests on, and and, and it's his own view as well that we're on the verge of a, of an energy crisis. Now I suspect your medium and longer term view on energy might be. Uh, might be a little bit different, but certainly over the short term, what you were saying very clearly was that it was an extremely crowded trade. Not only were we saying that, JP, but we were also saying that the narrative that Russian supply had been cut was completely incorrect. We were picking up numerous little stories from um, Indian ports, Chinese ports, traders in Dubai, traders in um, Eastern Europe and in the Eastern Med particularly, of effectively a, a massive surge in in Russian exports. Which is kind of what the system was designed for in a sense, isn't it? Because the last thing that Biden wanted and the Europeans wanted was for the oil price to go up because suddenly Russian crude disappears from the market. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, of course, there are downstream complications, but, you know, it's kind of fungible, unlike... Uh, I was going to say, unlike natural gas, although that has that has changed now significantly with with the rise of the LNG market. Yeah, I, my view is that the investors spend way too much time just listening to governments. Full stop. I'll leave it like like that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And central banks as well as part of government. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no alpha in in talking about central banks, in my opinion. And I agree. Okay, but just coming back to the other main argument, and the one I was hearing loud and clear was that the pressure, particularly on, for example, the US producers to conserve their capital, not to go through another boom sort of bust cycle, would seriously restrict over the meat and of course, the ESG movement as as well, particularly the impact on the uh, European companies that would severely restrict the, uh, you know, the supply of oil. Well, I mean, that was definitely our story from I don't know, the beginning of 2020 to the middle of last year, which is that the, the net zero narrative was, was extremely destructive to the supply of, well, all fossil fuels. But then we started to pick up, again, a real-world story. We started to pick up a remarkable phenomenon, which I thought was very important, but nobody seemed to be taking any notice of, which is that, what the producers were in fact doing is they were under intense pressure over uh, methane emissions because they, I can't remember the number. Methane is something like three hundred sixty thousand times more carbon intensive to the atmosphere than um, carbon dioxide. So what what the producers in fact did, and they did it worldwide. There was a, we dug out there's a World Bank initiative to reduce methane emissions. So. It was comparatively trivial for all the big oil producers, you know, in, not only in North, North America, but, 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 but in Europe and the Middle East and Russia as well, to re-engineer their oil and gas wells to recover uh, flared waste gases 
that would otherwise never be in the system. So you've picked what you've seen is actually a massive one-off increase in supply of hydrocarbons into the system. And I don't think people have picked this up. No, I agree. I, I certainly, I have to be very honest, I wasn't really aware of, of that side of it. The interesting thing is the EIA, which is the big uh, US agency which measures all things hydrocarbons in the US, issued a major revision in their numbers and, and said, I'm terribly sorry, we've, we've completely mucked up our, our numbers. And the, the market tends to, what the market tends to do is, is let's say, oil or gas. And oil wells produce oil and gas wells produce gas, and which is nonsense in the real world. Oil wells produce gas and gas wells produce oil, and it's all, it's all very relative. And t- companies tend to classify their wells by the biggest revenue of them. But in, in nearly all cases, these wells are producing enormous quantities of propane and butane and uh, what's called natural gasoline as well. And... Um, for years, these were either just allowed to gas off as, as gas, or they were flared. Even in North America, flaring was extremely common and, until about 2015. But at, you know, the pressure from the, the Green Lobby was intense. And you had all these pictures in the New York Times, which again, the AI picked up of uh, you know, flaring in North Dakota or flaring in the Permian Basin. But by and large, companies companies do not like to be perceived as bad, you know. So you you know the Exxon's, the Chevron's of the world said, "Well, you know, we can't do this." And then you got this ESG phenomenon as well, which is in a sense part of the net zero theme. So they began to clean up their act. By cleaning up their act, they accidentally started producing a lot more stuff than than we had any right to expect. And what what's really interesting right now is in in Houston. Propane and butane are trading at about $25 a barrel. And this stuff is, you know, a powerful input cost into all sorts of things. I mean, you know, we, we tend to associate it with, you know, going camping or whatever. But petrochemical complex, I'll quite happily use butane or propane. What now do you think is, is priced into oil, if that's not a, a stupid question? In recent weeks, I've, I've sort of gone neutral and... The reason I've sort of gone vaguely neutral is the AI is telling me all the stuff that we already knew. The AI is visibly saying, oh, my God, we've got all this, this Russian stuff in the market. And the AI is beginning to pick up that we've got this you know, third leg of hydrocarbon production that's in the market. So the supply picture is that the, the market's beginning to acknowledge that the supply picture is a lot better than it had any right to be demand's fine i mean you know demand worldwide is is okay i mean energy demand does not move much with gnp energy demand moves with weather and there was another um, little accident which was uh, you know in hindsight it became very important which is that the european winter i mean obviously we had putin cutting off gas supplies to europe so this was the, this is putin's shock move he, he thought he could cut oil and gas supplies to europe and that europe would starve or whatever in fact europe was about 12 percent warmer than normal this winter so basically if you look at natural gas demand in in europe it was about 35 percent down year on year december on december how much of that was due to actually deliberate energy 
conservation measures. I mean, certainly on the household side, I mean, there's evidence that people drastically, you know, across Europe, drastically cut back. At the moment, I wouldn't like to even attempt to put figures on it, but you've got a little bit of conservation going on. A complete throttling of Europe's energy-intensive industrial base. You know, for example, I think by um, the middle of last year, the entire fertilizer capacity of Europe had effectively been shut down. And, you know, you were you were close to the point where people like Basseff were sort of saying, uh, we might have to close. <laughs> and so, you, you, you know, the, you've got the industrial usage in freefall. You've got household usage, some measure of conservation going on. And you've got a warm winter. I mean, the, the, the three factors together were very, very potent on demand. So we, we effectively exited winter. It's quite important to understand this because when gas prices in Europe were incredibly high, it, it actually made sense for a German industrial company to, to start burning kerosene or diesel to make electricity. And we had evidence that that was going on. And the German government was actually encouraging it. <laughs> So you, you had a whole bunch of stuff going on, you know, including the restart of all Europe's uh, coal-fired capacity. And, you know, Europe in, imported a, a bunch of coal in the expectation of it being needed for winter. And then winter was warm, and, and suddenly Europe's sitting on an enormous stockpile of coal that they don't need. So you, you, you made the top of the cycle last winter beautifully. And since then, it's been the great unwind. Plus, I guess as well, you had a build-out, particularly of floating LNG capacity in a number of countries. I'm not sure what happened on the supply side. Obviously, um, you know, there was a lot. I think the US was the main supplier. But interestingly, Russia as well is quite a big supplier of LNG. Russia's pretty marginal. They, they talk a lot, but their actual capacity is fairly small. They've got plans for big stuff, big stuff in future, but I don't know whether they've got the money or the wherewithal to do it at the moment. It's quite interesting. The Russians at the moment are, are sweet talking to the Japanese and the Indians about financing more capacity addition in Russia. And you know, not to put to find a point on it, the Russians have been lying through their teeth for the for the last six months. I mean, the Kremlin has every day said, "Yes, we're we're good OPEC members and we're cutting like hell." I mean, we had two stories together one day in January, I think. Which just made me laugh. We had, on the one hand, we had uh, Lavrov, who's the oil minister, standing up saying, well, "Yes, we're going to cut half a million barrels a day. Yes, we're good OPEC members, and we're going to behave." Meanwhile, from the Indian press, the same day, we had representatives of, of you know Rosneft and, and the like and Gazprom, so busy signing deals with the Indian government, left, right, and centre, to supply them with oil. And that's a, that's a feature of your AI database that it takes into account a vast range of, of sort of sources from the emerging world as well as from the usual suspects from the US and, you know, Europe as well. The AI is not geographically constrained. It reads 12 different languages. We do struggle to pick up news flow out of two particular countries, China and Russia, because the Chinese and Russians are authoritarian governments and they don't like people like me surfing their their web <laughs> sadly it's now virtually a state state monopoly in russia as well unlike the uh, sort of anarchy of the uh, of the 90s and early 2000s where you really did have a lot of independent voices but by and large they've they've disappeared now sadly yeah no that's true 
So if we look ahead, because really, you know, I mean, there, there are a number of different ways of, of looking at inflation. But, but if we look at Europe, it seems to me that natural gas is, and it's a very obvious point, but I think it's one that's overlooked to a great extent. Uh, natural gas is absolutely the core of the inflationary pressure that we're seeing. I mean, some of it, of course, is due to the labour market. And, and clearly, there were changes in the low labour market that were accelerated by COVID. And, and the aftermath of, of COVID. But if we look at food, for example, food in essence is, is, is sort of energy. And I, I just wonder to what extent we, we might be surprised by sort of disinflationary pressures if the LNG price remains close to where it is at the moment, or, or, even, or even if it falls further. I mean, I don't know if you have a, a strong view on where natural gas, in, 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 particularly in Europe, is likely to is likely to go over the next six months. As you say, a lot of it, or looking out to the end of the year, a lot of it is clearly weather dependent, but but there are obviously other factors in play as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, first of all, I think Friedman said that inflation is everywhere and anywhere a monetary phenomenon. Well, I would slightly change his language to inflation is everywhere and anywhere an energy phenomenon. I mean, the history of civilization from the get-go is the history of, uh, of humankind uh, exploiting more and more efficient uh, sources of energy and effectively making energy more abundant, cheaper, and more available over time. And in a sense, you know, that, that was the crux of the emerging story for the last 30 years, that, that the emerging energy demand w- would rise to match OECD levels. And the fact is that you know, this comes to my diabolical mechanism, which is the world is not a constant place. And, you know, we, for, for a very long time, we talked about in the oil industry, the sort of the decline of the monstrous oil fields that had been discovered in the 1920s and the 30s and the 40s. And therefore, we were going to go into massive oil supply shortage. And, but boom, we suddenly discovered the shale. And I still don't think your average investor has any clue of of the scale of the shale results. The conventional wisdom, among, certainly amongst the so-called experts that I listen to, is, is that production has reached a plateau and is likely to stay there because of the pressure on the um, US companies from their shareholders. But you, you don't think that's, that's right. You think, in fact, that we can still go further up. I've got to say, I think this, this whole shareholder story is, is tangential. I, I think the, the real pressure on all energy companies worldwide is coming from a combination of ESG and net zero policies. And that's still the big, you know, if, if I were to make a bull case over, say, 10 years, I, I would be you know, saying that the, the net zero dynamic particularly, um, but coupled with ESG, is, is, is an enormous constraint on potential supply. You know, just to tell you a story, I had a massive argument with the Tory party in the UK about the UK, because the, the UK is actually an incredibly energy-rich country. We have North Sea, which is by no means geologically fully exploited. We have an enormous shale resource in Lancashire and Yorkshire particularly, but other areas of the country. Where I live in Hampshire, we're sitting on the Jurassic uh, limestones, which are well known to be oil rich. Uh, we have 
uh, you know, I'm a Geordie. I come from Newcastle, and when when I was growing up, I grew up in a coal town, and we used to mine. We used to be self-sufficient in coal. We still could be self-sufficient in coal. But the policy, the policy agenda in the UK has effectively, to all intents and purposes, closed our fossil fuel industry. Now, if enough members of the OECD start doing that, and the US is a crucial one, I agree. Canada is another crucial one. And Australia, to a certain extent, depending on what you're looking at, is also a crucial one. Then you're going to get yourselves into a right bloody mess. And then, you know, we're going to restart the whole sort of, you know, going to restart the tango. <laughs> we're going to restart the shortage argument. But at the moment, we're feasting off a completely uncontrolled Russia. I, I joke to people that the Russians would sell you their grandmother half price right now. And, you know, Russia is a monster in the commodity market. You know, Russia basically has the GNP of Spain. But the, in, in any given commodity, it's roughly 30% of the market. So I want to move on to something else you said, which is the, about, you're talking about the LNG market. You know, I think the critical thing here is that pre the Ukraine, Russia was the marginal supplier of European coal, gas, and oil, and had about, I don't know, 30, 50% market share, and I'm slightly bullshit. Post Ukraine, Russia's market share in Europe is, is effectively going to zero. And we have completely replaced our Russian addiction with a North American addiction. This makes me laugh because a, fr a French company, which will remain nameless, walked away from a major LNG contract in Texas about three years ago because of ESG reasons. They didn't think the shale was clean and hygienic or something or good for humanity. Uh, but they were quite happy to buy Russian gas from wells that probably leak and pollute everything inside. It was just hilarious. And now suddenly the same French company, again, which will be nameless, is, is signing LNG deals left, right and centre with Texas and Louisiana. So, you know, <laughs> plus ça change, really. So for the, the time being, in oil, maybe we're, we're locked into a, a range which is not dissimilar to where we've been trading maybe over the last sort of couple of months or so. I'm not a great believer in commodities range trading. Uh, commodities, in my experience, and I've been doing commodities now for 40 years, have only two metastable points. You're either trading at replacement cost or you're trading at avoided operating cost. So it's top and bottom of the cycle. And anywhere between, you're traveling. And right now, the direction of travel is towards the bottom. Now, where is the bottom? That's a good question. I mean, some, you, you could argue it's sort of 60. I think in gas, North American gas prices are back to two, i.e. we've done the full lumber cycle. But obviously not in Europe, Mark, just in the US. Sure, but, but I mean, basically, European gas now trades as a supply... As, uh, two in Texas, cost of LNG liquefaction, cost of moving it in a boat, cost of deliquefaction, cost of putting it in a pipeline. So basically, two in Texas translates effectively into, I don't know, call it 10 in Europe. This is the, the interesting thing about gas. Whereas moving oil is very cheap, M moving a, a 2 million barrel oil tanker from Texas to the North Sea basically probably costs you about 30 cents a barrel. 
And even if the the oil tanker market is is very tight, it might be it might get to as high as uh, I know two dollars a barrel. LNG because it has to be refrigerated goes in special ships, which are multiples of the expense of oil tankers. You know, you're talking more like five or six dollars, and so your pricing on gas is is always. I always call the gas market the, the property market of the commodity market because gas prices are completely dependent on location. And I guess the thing actually we haven't mentioned at all so far has been has been China and a lot of what's been happening over the last few months. We have the initial flurry in most commodities when uh, China reopened. Obviously, since then, you know we've seen uh, a, a lot of disappointment, and actually China itself was became a very, very crowded trade very, very quickly. And obviously, like commodities, a lot of people have been have been burned in that. I mean, I don't know if you take a sort of structural view on China or not. I mean, I do and I have done for a while, which is that regardless of whether you think the economy will ever go into a sort of crisis, what you do kind of almost know is that growth will be below expectations. And that's been the trend since, since 2012. Um, but would you say that, that that outlook for China, where growth is perhaps now maybe even as low as 3% going forward, again, is sort of priced in, if you like, to commodities at the moment? I mean, you've got some charts in here, particularly about the industrial metals complex, which seems almost wholly dependent from a demand perspective on, on what's actually happening in China. Okay, let's let's break that down. I think the best story on China that I would urge people to think about is that uh, and I, I'm generalizing acutely here, which is that communist authoritarian regimes are very good at, how should I call it, real stuff, dams, roads, rails. So, for example, between 1945 and 1964, the Soviet Union grew at roughly triple the rate of growth of the USA. And at one point, the New York Times lauded the Soviet Union as a model of how to run your economy. And then around about the mid-1960s, a number of things happened in the Soviet Union. One, they ran out of obvious projects. They ran out of what I would call high IRR internal engineering projects of, of high utility. And the, they, because of the nature of the regime, they, they completely failed to transition to you know, a, a consumer or service sector economy in any way, shape or form. And you know, if I look at China, let's run the China narrative, because basically China was a closed economy until, call it, the year 2000. And then, then you had the famous quote about you know, cats, which is, you know, who cares what color the cat is? Ding, ding, of course. And you, suddenly you went from 2000, say, to 2016, when China effectively did the same thing as the Soviet Union, which is build roads, build cities, build railroads, build ports, ad infinitum, and all financed effectively by its role as the factory of the world. So, you know, you like the money flow was exports running, I know, it's about three, four, five hundred trillion billion dollars a year, which runs into the economy, is used to make concrete and, and steel and and all of this stuff, and they make and, and they they you know they manufacture infrastructure. 
Well, today, actually, around about 2016, we began to look at this and go, well, hold on a minute. China's got more railways than in Europe, and, and it's got more ports than the rest of Asia. It's got more roads than the US. So China's infrastructure is visibly complete. So you, got in, you, you ran into what I call the Soviet Union trap, and the economy was uh, grotesquely over-dependent on infrastructure build, the, about 30% of GNP into effectively fixed investment. And you, you had a, a secondary phenomenon, which is, is becoming really important, which is that all of the internal stuff was debt financed. So you end up now in 2023, where China, which is an emerging market with GDP per capita of, I don't know, $20,000, $30,000. But debt per capita, you know, comparable to France, UK and Italy, the USA, i.e. the debt to GNP, it depends how you measure it. But I was interested to note that the Wall Street Journal put it at 49 trillion on a 17 trillion economy. So you're, you're at that sort of 300% mark. Although obviously the bulls counter, you know, that most of it is, is, is internally owed. But the problem is it's, you know, it's very, very messy, isn't it? Because obviously with the local government financing vehicles, I mean, even Beijing doesn't know with any certainty what the real level of debt is in, in a lot of the provinces. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a further problem which I'll describe as twofold, and we've done a lot of work on this, is that if you look at academic sources, China recently revised down its population from 1.44 to 1.28. And that intrigued us because normally Beijing signals direction but doesn't necessarily give you the accurate number. So we, we started wondering what the accurate number of, is on um, on Chinese population. And so we went to the academics, and there, there are four major academic studies on Chinese population. The one I really liked was a Japanese guy, and he, he looked at salt consumption in China from, you know, the 1940s to, you know, about the year 2000. And he came up with an estimate or based on salt consumption, which is relatively, you know, salt consumption per capita does not move much. So he came up with a number, roughly, we'll call it 950 million. So the three other academics have a look at it. One's a Russian guy. He, he does a statistical analysis based on urbanization of comparable countries. He takes Brazil, Indonesia, India, India and all these countries, and has a look at urbanization. He comes up with a number of, ooh, Roughly 950 million. How about that? And then there's, then there's the NASA geeks, and they're, they're into uh, light. Have you looked at light pollution data? I, you know, the uh, satellite data of, of how much uh, light there is in a country uh, at night. And from this, you can you can do stuff like estimate urbanization and estimate uh, the population. And, oh my God, they come up with a number of oh, 950 million. How did they do that? And the, the last bit is the one that makes me laugh is that one of the hackers, the black hat hackers, managed to hack the national police database in China last year. And he, he tried to sell the, the database to, I don't know, Coca-Cola or what have you. And uh, 
the the national police database in China contains well I never nine hundred and seventy eight million records. So basically, we have these sort of you know four or five different independent estimates of the Chinese population, which you know I put it to you are considerably lower. <laughs> Again, I was totally unaware of that, Mark. I have to have to be honest. I'm mean, obviously I was aware of the downward pressure on the population and and the sort of peak and everything else. But to put the figure that much lower, even than the lowest estimates, is is staggering, frankly. Well, I mean, I don't know. I I wrote in a piece. You know, let's let's suppose the population is actually 1.1 billion, right? It's still you still have a situation where Beijing has designed an infrastructure and built out houses and cities based on a population estimate of, say, 1.4. They've lowered that to 1.28, and our best guess of the true number is 1.1. So, in fact, the infrastructure overbuilt problem, particularly in housing, is is 40% larger than than, than looks. my, My best guess is that China now looks like Japan in the mid-1990s. But Mark, the argument is, and you you know, you must have heard this a million times over the, I exaggerate slightly, over the last few months, is that particularly with the green transition, you know, we're simply running out of the stuff to make this happen. You know, there isn't enough copper, there isn't enough lithium. I know, how do you respond to uh, to that? Because that, that must have been a very strong part of your AI six six months ago, maybe even more recently than that. Yeah, I mean, the shortage story in resources is is near mythical. But the fact is that you look at this planet and you look at the actual resource basis, and it's it's far bigger than I think anybody realises. The issue has always been, and always will be, whether the politics and the local governance of the countries where these resources are, are friendly for development. And paradoxically, that applies to alternative energy as well, as we're seeing in the UK at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, we know for a fact that Cornwall is sitting on, for example, probably one of the biggest tin resources in the world. But the the chances of a tin mine being reopened and mined in Cornwall, you know, you know that's an interesting question because in, in the present political environment, that seems to me to be about as near zero as it's possible to get on the dial. Well, wind farms are another very contentious area, aren't they? I mean, um, Keir Starmer's just come out with some um, proposals to effectively start to allow wind farms on on land in, in the UK. So in terms of energy, that very much enters, you know, politics again, absolutely central to the whole thing. You know, this comes back to slide number four, which is electricity production and spot prices in Germany in February of this year. And what we're effectively doing in the energy complex is replacing 24-7 power, coal or gas or oil, with intermittent energy. And the problem with intermittent energy is that the sun may or may not be shining and the wind may, may or may not be blowing when you and I want a cup of tea. There's a lovely mythical fact about the UK, which is quite, I always think is very funny, which is way back in the 70s, the biggest problem with the, the national grid was in fact, wasn't Crossroads, it wasn't Emmerdale Farm, it was one of those sitcoms that they had on BBC every night. And it was seven o'clock every night that 
the whole country would sit down and watch this bloody thing. And at 6.55, electricity demand absolutely surged as 50 million Britons turned on their kettle for a cup of tea. You know, this made the news. And, it, you know, the, the point that I'm making with, with this German data is that we're creating a situation where we have endemic negative electricity prices, particularly around, say, midday to noon, when solar peaks... I've got the data up from Germany, and you, you, oh God, how many times does electricity trade at minus two hundred and fifty a megawatt hour in Germany during during February one, two, three? I mean, it's at least a dozen times on that chart. So you, you're you're creating a huge mismatch between energy demand and energy supply, and the more renewables you stuff into a system. The, the worse this mismatch becomes. Now, what I find funny is the Germans are the only country that's honest enough to actually publish the data in a useful form. If you come to the UK, for example, we have these wonderful Orwellian phrases to describe how the grid deals with excess electricity production. And they have sort of, last quarter, we made 2 billion of electricity capacity surplus charges and that that means that the uk is producing negative electricity and the the, 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 what the grid does effectively is is pay wind farms to stay shut (laughs) i mean this is a secular problem this has the potential to ignite It's, it's the core of what i call my diabolical mechanism because we recently we last week found a a company in germany it's a quoted company, and they, they stated openly they run recycled plastic so that they're paid by the municipalities. So they, they get paid $50 a ton to take this recycled plastic out of green bins. They're paid by the grid to process this plastic, and then they're paid to sell it to Coca-Cola and what have you as, as plastic. So, I mean, I mean, how about that for business? You paid three ways. And that is deflationary as hell. This is also the significance of AI, right? Which I don't think people have realized, is that the problem with a grid is that if the cloud passes, a cloud passes over the sun, then your grid price for electricity will go from negative to positive in a few seconds. And human engineers or humans operating the grid are just not fast enough to react. You have to have something like an AI. And we're picking up evidence now that at least two companies in the Middle East are using negatively negative electricity power costs to make aluminium. So in other words, every cost curve that listeners listen to is garbage. You can tear them all up, tear them all up, throw them away because they're complete garbage. As soon as you get negative power costs into your cost curve, every commodity cost curve is incrementally lower than what you thought it was. Now, whereas two years ago, negative power costs were, a, were con, kind of considered a bit odd and a bit weird, now they're considered almost a permanent feature of the landscape. And companies are visibly retooling their process engineering to exploit that. And I, I'm coming up with you know, real-world examples of, I would say about a dozen now, of real-world examples of, of companies retooling their, their process configuration to exploit negative electricity power costs. 
I mean, the implications of a lot of what you've been saying today and um, what you've been talking about in your magnificently eclectic dailies is disinflationary. And, and I, th- I think that's clearly not a narrative that's even started to take hold yet amongst the investor community, right? You know, the, one of my favorite stories is, I call it Mayor of Houston, and I, I can no longer find any um, record of this. It's, it's, gone from, it's gone from the public transcripts. But the first time I went to Houston, I, I picked up the local paper, and the Mayor of Houston had gone bust, and he had 10 rigs, and he owed, say he owed the, the bank $10 million or something. So basically the bank seized his 10, his 10 rigs and he went bust. And he was a very popular mayor. So what he did is he had a yard sale and he scrimped together $5 million. And he went to the bank and he said, you have my rigs and I have $5 million. You give me back my rigs and I will give you the $5 million. And the bank said, yeah, okay, we'll do that. So in other words, we've got a $5 million cut-off book value, a $5 million write-off on the loads. So a year later, the mayor of Houston goes bust again, and the bank seizes his rigs, and he has a yard sale, and he raises $2 million. And he goes to the bank, and he goes, sir, you have my rigs, and I have $2 million. You give me back my rigs, and I will give you the $2 million. So the net net of all of this is in the real world, we never cut capacity. We All we do is cut the book value and cut the debt against, uh, against the real assets. Now, I, re- I raise this story because recently there's been a Norwegian entrepreneur who controls a large rig company in Norway, who has done precisely a mayor of Houston, Norwegian style, and done it twice. And so far, all he's done is stuffed the banks for $3.5 billion of bad debt. And what I can't believe is the, the equity is still quoted. There's been no reduction in issue rig count, and it's the exact repeat of the same story. And that's, that's your deflationary interlude. So yes, Mark, do you just want to say something briefly about um, your sort of the product that you offer? As I say, I've been lucky enough to uh, receive your uh, dailies and, and great reading they are as well. So if investors want to uh, reach out to you, they should contact the IRF and we can put them in touch. I mean, do you have anything to add to that on the sort of product or service side? We have a product configured for all needs. You know, if you want the you know, the full daily with with my commentary and access to me on a daily basis, that's about $25,000 a year. Or if you can't afford that, we will sell you a, a monthly features, which is the sort of the core ideas, but it's not very timely for $1,000 a year. Very good. So uh, please do get in touch with us, Mark uh, Latham from Commodity Intelligence. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much.